So you've got to ask yourself, why won't he release his tax returns? And I think there may be a couple of reasons. First, maybe he's not as rich as he says he is. It's unbelievable. We would have thought at least in one of the years that we saw, maybe the year he wrote Art of the Deal, he would have made money. He didn't. He was just bleeding money every year that we looked at. I've had it both ways in my own life. I've had debt and I've had not debt. And not debt is better, believe me. Right. It's a lot easier. Uh, you have certain advantages with that, but not that it's easy. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Today is very taxing. Trump's been running his seedy pit boss, stale cigar smoking strippers, Atlantic City Casino Logic on his own taxes, losing $1.1 billion, according to the New York Times, over the decade between 1985 and 1994. So that is taxing. I'm also feeling some contempt from and for Trump's people, especially that Attorney General William Barr, feeling some contempt for him. And then there's the fact that Max Boot told me this week we have Archie Bunker as president, which would almost be too dreadful to bear, except that, well, the royal baby redeems that first name, Archie. And all I can say is, all right, here's my Edith impression. Oh, Archie. Congratulations, Harry and Meghan, and welcome to the world, Archie Harrison Mountbatten-Windsor. My guest today is Richard Rubin, who covers all things tax for the Wall Street Journal. It's his first time on Trumpcast, and he's here to break down those revelations about Trump's taxes and how Trump was, by all accounts, the nation's biggest money loser in those high-flying years of the 80s and 90s. That's before he pretended to be a success, sold us on the Trump brand in the late 90s, and started his latest long-running con. I'll be back with Richard in just a minute. But first, the tweets. Scott Walker is 100% correct when he says that the Republicans must wake up to the Democrats' state-by-state power grab. They play very dirty, actually, like never before. Don't allow them to get away with what they're doing. Despite the tremendous success that I've had as president, including perhaps the greatest economy and most successful first two years of any president in history, they've stolen two years of my R presidency collusion delusion that we will never be able to get back. The witch hunt is over, but we will never forget. Make America great again. Port Puerto Rico has been given more money by Congress for hurricane disaster relief, $91 billion, than any state in the history of the U.S. As an example, Florida got $12 billion and Texas got $39 billion for their monster hurricanes. Now the Democrats are saying no relief to Alabama, Iowa, Nebraska, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and others unless much more money is given to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. The Dems don't want farmers to get any help. Puerto Rico should be very happy and the Dems should stop blocking much needed disaster relief. Richard, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so taxes, you know, it occurred to me we all have wanted to get our hands on Trump's taxes for such a long time. And, you know, it's become this ego battle. 
But why is it important to see his taxes? Why was it important while he was a candidate? And why is it important now? We all know from Michael Cohen that he exaggerates his net worth when he needs to get loans and he minimizes it when he needs to pay taxes. Right. I think what we've seen really over the past almost four years now that he's shifted from being business person and celebrity and reality TV star into being a politician and now president is the filling in of these details. So that there's that broad arc that you just laid out. And then now like every we're interested in part because he's been a fascinating public figure for 45 years at this point. Mm-hmm. And so every little bit is interesting. You know, with someone who's got this much, this many different assets, this many different businesses, this many different lives, uh, essentially in inside of one public life. Every revelation is itself adds like more and more layers to what we know and more and more detail that fleshes out this, this big broad story. And tax returns are this really granular thing that are interesting in some ways because there's this assumption that they're created without the intent that anyone of us would ever see them, yeah. right? So they're, it's not like they're we're prepared for public consumption. They expressly weren't, certainly back the, the further back you go. Yeah. I mean, there is, when you think of these forums, I mean, it seems like we all fantasize, I know I had this before the Mueller report, we all fantasize about a form of communication that's direct, where we could know, finally... How does this guy spend his money? Is he a billionaire? Is he slated for debtor's prison? Are his deals entirely with the Bank of Kazakhstan? I mean, really anything his tax returns could show would be somehow illuminating and also cut out some of this indeterminacy. I think it really was when Michael Cohen put it this way that a lot of his job was just shrinking and exaggerating Trump's net worth. Another day, another cooking of books and fudging of numbers. And just it somehow seems like if you could just see the familiar IRS forms that make us, you know, what we all have to do in April every year, nothing certain but death and taxes, finally take a look at this and say, aha, this is who you really are. Yes, it's tempting to think that, but I don't think that's actually ever, A, even if we get them, I don't think that's what's the reality of what's going to happen. I think, you know, there's not, this is sort of an exaggerated joke, but, you know, I've tried to make the point that there won't be like a Schedule C Russia line, right? Like on his tax returns. That's, that's not the way this works. Even if there were business ties in Russia that we didn't know about or whatever, it's just never going to be that clear. And, you know, as we've seen, you know, from the Times story, they got a lot of great detail that we hadn't known before. And it fleshes out the picture that we've had over the broad arc of his career and particularly that period in the 80s and 90s when he was sort of publicly succeeding and, and then failing in a variety of businesses. But it also then raises a whole bunch of new questions about exactly what was going on then and and sort of what the end of that story arc really was. Okay, so he accumulated all these losses and then what, right? So, no, it's this thing where my tax return or your tax return or the tax returns of probably, you know, the vast majority of Americans would, in fact, give you a pretty clear picture. Oh, this person earns wages. They've got a couple of stocks they sold. They've got a retirement account, you have the real sort of clear picture of the simple finances of someone when you look at their tax return. I've been looking at all the Democratic candidates' returns. I'm like, you can kind of mostly figure out roughly what people's financial lives were like. Yeah, He's a whole different deal. 
Yeah. So how is that? And is it worthwhile talking about periods in his manipulation of taxes, possibly fraud? Is it worth talking about periods? Because, as you said, the Times says, of course, we haven't seen their reporting and it raises tons of questions about how they managed to score a decade worth of tax returns. But anyway, we have, as you said, mid 80s to the mid 90s now. Uh, The Times has them. What did you learn from those about that period in particular? And what do you think the next periods, the ones that Congress is especially interested in, might show us? I would actually separate into three periods. But so, yes, what we learned is we see exactly how big those losses were that, you know, that 1990 and 91 as the recession, that recession hit were the really bad years, but that the losses that he was incurring, at least for tax purposes, were building up before then. You've seen in his public defense of these that uh, he's described it as a sport. He described yeah. it as uh, a tax shelter. He's, I mean, his sort of is this thing where he's quite brazen about saying and proud of not having paid taxes because that was the thing to do if you're a real estate developer in the 80s in the way he tells it. Mm-hmm. And so so the next phase is then, okay, well, what happened to those losses? Did he actually generate income to soak up those losses as he carried them forward on his tax returns? Whose losses were they? Were they really his losses? Or was he taking credit essentially for his lender's losses in some way? Mm-hmm. It's an open question that some tax scholars have raised. And the period that the Congress is looking for is actually a quite different period. It's the period when you know there was money the apprentice there's money from a much more straightforward kind of business licensing licensing of his name was actually a very much simpler business than acquiring real estate acquiring a football team and airline like all the stuff in the 80s was this sort of much more complex business with a lot more available deductions like it's harder to think that some of that was quite as possible in the more recent times when he was getting a much more simple kind of income stream. It's almost diabolically fascinating that at a point where you'd think he had the least to collateralize to prop up his name, of all things, you know, we remember losing Leona Helmsley and all the savings and loan types and Milken and so forth. And, you know, people went to prison and were disgraced and then had to rebuild or not rebuild. And somehow, after a billion dollars in business losses, if the Times reporting can be trusted, he's able to sell himself to Mark Burnett on The Apprentice as a businessman who suffered setbacks, but is otherwise king of the jungle. I always think that the introduction to The Original Apprentice teed off Survivor, Mark Burnett's earlier show, and was very like, this is the real you know, battle for survival and Darwin and whatever. How did he manage just to skate over a time where corporate raiders and some of the figures in the 1990 crash before that savings and loan? I mean, how do you think he managed to get away with this when it seems so nakedly working the tax system and some of the worst parts of it? I would think about it in a few ways. One is that, you know, externally, he still sort of kept up the appearances of wealth, the apartments, the limos, the helicopters, the golf courses, right? So he has always been able to have those indicia of wealth yeah. and success. And, and that's always been really important to him. So he's had that, and that's been a, an important part of his public image since the early to mid 80s, right, mm-hmm. is, is maintaining all of that. So that's part of it. Two, is unlike some of those people, he obviously has had, you know, issues with legal authority, but he never filed personal bankruptcy. His business, some of his businesses went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. He's never been charged with crime or went to prison or right. So like he, he didn't have a badge of dishonor nearly quite as bad as some of those other folks. Yeah. And he's highly 
available and this is one of the ways he won in 2016 is he was available and out there and talking about himself and promoting himself he's a great promoter and brander Mm -hmm. you can like him or dislike him but you can't sort of deny that skill that he has at that probably puts his name on everything so it's oh it must be you know valuable he must be rich because his name is on all these buildings Mm -hmm. regardless of whether it's a licensing deal or whatever so uh it's it's that whole combination of things that he sort of kept himself in the public eye and prominent as wealthy successful business person for a long time sometimes when that was true and sometimes when that was not the question is always how to get away with it for so long how is he still getting away with it and you know the irs I mean, why wasn't he just audited within a, an inch of his life and thrown into whatever debtor's prison is now? I'm not quite ready to say like, getting away with it. I'll let you use that language. Okay. I won't use it. Okay. But I think we don't know. So, like, we, we know there hasn't been a tax court case and, you know, a, a federal court case of Trump versus commissioner, um, which is where a, a big tax dispute between any taxpayer and the IRS would land. You know, his lawyers say he was audited for a long time and that he was still under audit as of 2016 for years of 2009 forward we just don't know that that's again one of the the mysteries that you want to know even more about the audit results and it's worth noting that's one of the things that the ways and means committee has asked for is not just the returns but the audit paperwork and that and the whole file that must exist at the at the irs that lays out exactly how this whole back and forth has gone it's an unknown of exactly what if any he's had to pay or what adjustments to his income have been made. Well, it's important to think about this too, right? If you're carrying losses and not paying taxes, you can have the IRS make significant adjustments to your income, right? Yeah. Say you had $500 million in losses. The IRS says, no, 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 it was really $100 million. And you don't have to write a check because you're still negative, but it, re- but it then affects your ability to continue to use those losses going forward. So we just, we don't, we really don't know. It's, which is amazing. We feel like, doesn't feel like we know so much about him. Yeah. We know everything. He's been in the public eye for so long. Yeah. And yet there's things we still just don't quite know. There is no sort of magic, like you're saying before on the, on the Mueller report, it's the equivalence. Like there is no narrative of exactly how it all happened and came together that covers the whole period. Yeah. We're just not there yet, amazingly. They probably begin by discounting every single thing he says about himself. I mean, I don't know. I actually think of it as scraping off the brass and tanning stuff and just trying to imagine him standing just kind of like naked before us. Sorry to get that in your head. And us knowing just what are his assets? What are his deeds? You know, when Tim O'Brien finally got his feet held to the fire very briefly and admitted to, you know, exaggerating how much money he had and at times how much money he didn't have. I don't know. All this indeterminacy and alternative facts have set up, I just feel like, almost a longing for empirical truth, you know, for numbers. But I think there was some element of that expectation in the period, if you remember the period before he filed his first financial disclosure report as a candidate, there was like, ah, he's going to file this and like, he's going to not like actually own any of the stuff that he says he owns. And well, no, he actually does, right? So like, it's not that there's nothing there. That's the thing. If it were... If it were all uh, brass and yeah. uh, self-tanner or whatever, right? Like, then that would be one thing. But it's that's not quite the reality here. Like, he is, you know, I uh, I was uh, at, at Bloomberg at the time, and like the yeah. Bloomberg estimates were that he was worth two to three billion dollars. Like, it's not that there's nothing there, right? Which makes it even harder to untangle. You can't just say, ah, he's not worth anything because that's not the reality either. 
you may have seen this years ago. There was a documentary, I think in the 90s, probably about children of rich kids. I think the heir to the Johnson and Johnson fortune made it. And this put Ivanka Trump on the map as the smart heiress. But her line in that, you maybe remember, is that her father had told her that a bum on the street had more money than he did because at least the bum on the street didn't have $100 million or whatever in debt. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a great quote from her, but it seems like that family lives with, and going back years, lives with this cognitive dissonance all the time that the proof that you're very, very rich is that you have a lot, a lot of debt. You know, that's not the middle class way. That's the way that he's fundamentally out of touch with how the rest of us think about our taxes and how we think literally about plus and minus. Right. It's just a different mindset and world that he operates in. And you can like put whatever value judgment on that you want. You can look at him and like and admire that. I mean, and lots of people do, right? I mean, that's like it's it's that combination of bravado and consumption, right? That has actually brought him a lot of admiration in a lot of the public, right? And, yeah. and has for a long time. Yeah. And so you can look at that and be like, oh, cool, good for you, man, right? <laughs> but he just operates and thinks clearly thinks about money in ways that are just different from how most people think about it. You know, and obviously different from how a lot of rich people think about it. But I'm sure there's a subset of, of wealthy people who, who kind of live in the same mindset as he does. What is the thing that you would most like to see explained in his tax returns, either on the ones that we've seen now or the ones to come? Two things, both of which we've touched on. One is what happened to those losses, right? So he had these big losses. We know he sort of built them up in the late 80s and early 90s. Then like, what happened? Did he generate income to soak them up? Did he have to reduce some of those losses when you know, debts were canceled? Like, what what's the end of that part of the story of, yeah. of that accumulation of debt? Like, how did the and losses like what what happened there and the other thing is is the audits like what what's the you know the irs in the modern era is very good at privacy they take it really seriously over there and so we don't at all have a clear sense of how they as an institution have viewed him as a taxpayer um you'd see if there were a court case you'd see it because some of those documents would be in there but there's not and so we don't know that and so the extent to which we, we could see any of the the audit file, the correspondence between his lawyers and the IRS's lawyers, yeah. the all their attempts to tax him uh, more or not, I, I think would give us a, some would fill in some blanks. You'd have essentially the view of independent people who've spent a lot of time looking at this. Right? There's people, there's people at the IRS who've spent a lot more time, a lot deeper in his finances than any of us, and we don't know what they think. And what about on his side? I mean, is this Wesselberg and Cohen? I mean, who are the CPAs who work for him? (laughs) Who's in this mock? And are the accountants especially clever and creative or just aggressive? As I'm sure you've noticed, he goes through professionals with some degree of regularity. I think the people who came up with the structures in the late 80s are not the people who are with him now. Right. Um, I mean, Weisselberg obviously is sort of a connective tissue between his father and today. He's got, you know, on the tax side, yes, he has CPAs, but, you know, since 05, his tax lawyers have been uh, Sherry Dillon and Will Nelson, who are now at Morgan Lewis, um, who are, you know, very well-respected senior uh, tax controversy lawyers, the, the kind of people who, you you know, if you were a very rich person um, in a dispute with the IRS for lots of money, like, that's who you would hire. Bill Nelson was the former chief counsel of the IRS. It's exactly like 
it's not some cut rate group. So mm-hmm. he's got he's he's had at least for the past fifteen years really experienced um, tax counsel working on whatever problem existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, he's got. There are obviously people on his side who know the full guts of how everything or most of everything works. So someone on Twitter said not long ago that I think the line was, I wish I wanted anything as much as the rich want to pay slightly less in taxes. And just the passion for paying a million dollars less when you have a billion dollars. What is that mindset? I mean, what do you think someone like Trump or even less vulgar billionaires think taxes are? I think obviously there's a variety of views, right? There are billionaires who obviously don't gripe about their taxes at all. I, I think for some, particularly ones who started without very much, there's a sense of, you know, I earned it and I want to like build this generational wealth to keep it for my children and grandchildren and taxes get in the way of that. So that's sort of a strain of thought that, you, that you'll see. I think there's some who view it as I mean, the president said sport, right? Yeah. It's, it's a sort of co- a competition, a game of like, I'm going to, I try and be the best at everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to try and be the best at like this game where I work the system to pay as little in tax as possible. And, and you can do that alongside of being like, uh, alongside of being quite charitable, right? It's sort of, you, you can compartmentalize this role of trying to limit what you pay to the government, which you might think doesn't spend it very well, and then choosing how you'd spend your money in ways that overlap some of the government's functions, whether it's on health or education or whatever. I think those are among the views that you see out there. And then what about when they cross into public service, though? You know, when taxpayers pay for everything for Donald Trump, I almost think he almost doesn't make that connection. I mean, but remember, he's the self-proclaimed king of debt. So he so. Yeah. I mean, he goes back and forth, as you see, right? He'll go say, well, we should borrow more. I'm the king of debt. I like to play with debt. And then I'm going to eliminate the debt in eight years, or right, as you heard during the campaign. Mm-hmm. So he's, yeah, that's not a connection you hear him make very often, right? It's the all of the criticism that the administration has gotten over taxpayer spending on golf and trips to Mar-a-Lago and whatever. Yeah. Like, he hasn't responded to much of any of that. And that's, I don't know why that is. I can't get, I, I can't pretend to understand that. I want to get back to a couple more specifics from the reporting. In the period, this 10-year period that the Times has the returns from, or a couple pages of each return from, Trump has two kind of good years. One of them, he makes $67.1 million in salary. Mm -hmm. I guess that's from the Trump organization. And another time, he makes a $52.9 million windfall in interest income. The Times calls that mysterious. And then things really fall apart in 1990. One thing that struck me, and I want to hear what struck you about those particular years, I think that's 87 to 90, is this side career posing as a corporate raider, an expression that, you know, brought me back. Weren't people called like Chainsaw Dunlap? And so, they, you know, they'd come in and buy companies and just slash them to pieces and take them for parts. So he said he made millions of dollars in the stock market, according to the report, by suggesting he was about to take over companies. So he's going to go in and raid companies that weren't doing well. And then, I guess, brought the money up because people still believed, even though he was already losing a lot, that his name was worth something, that if he took something over, it might do well. And then he kept losing those gains because after two years of it, investors stopped taking his takeover talk seriously. I mean, that sounds like some Jim Cramer. I don't know what that sounds like. I mean, isn't that insider trading? I, do I know anything? 
Yeah, that I'm not an expert on, but I mean, I think you see the parallels to that now, where we spend a lot of time deciding whether to take tweets and threats literally or not. I mean, it's the same. It's the same pattern. Like we've seen it on China, the the trade talks this week. Like the the market reaction is, wait, is this? Are we taking him seriously? Should we believe that this is actually falling apart, or is he just like threatening or just like? He's done the it's the it's the same pattern. Yeah, you're right. He can like bellow. I mean, I think, you know, it's like a speech act instead of a sentence or a statement is you make something happen with your words. You influence the market just by saying something and the thing doesn't have to bear any resemblance to the truth. Except sometimes it does. Right. I mean, there is a federal register notice to raise the tariffs and like he has put tariffs on things. It's not like. If he were always only bluffing, yeah, that would be different. But he's not, and so I mean, I, I haven't read the Art of the Deal, but I assume it's something mm-hmm. you know in one of those books somewhere where he kind of talks about how you have to be. Well, one can imagine that one would write in a book like that <laughs> that you would want to be sometimes credible enough to be believed and sometimes not, and that's yeah. I, I think what he's actually very um, has been. It's been really frustrating to legislators and investors um, because they're not quite sure when to know that something is bluster and something is not. Yeah. But that's, it's the same pattern. If I'm struck by this reference to his masquerade as a corporate raider, kind of creating fluctuations in the market with his patented style of kind of bellowing, what struck you that someone without your eagle eye for taxes wouldn't have noticed in the new reporting? I think it was just the way that the losses started to accumulate before the period when it got really bad. For him. Like, we all knew that the casino business, like, again, I wasn't covering this in 1990, but having looked back on it, right, it was clear that the casino businesses were in bad shape in 90 and 91, and he was sort of publicly in, in bad shape then. But what was striking is how in the earlier years of the period from 85 through 88, um, years when he was writing Art of the Deal and, and was this had that sort of aura of success that he had built up, that those were years where he was showing tax losses. And now that may be a case where you are able through depreciation and other totally normal and accepted ways to show losses for tax purposes, even though you're borrowing and you've got consumption. But even in that period when he looked successful, it was it's worth noting that at least for tax purposes, he wasn't. It is definitely worth noticing. And he must have known, and now this is looking toward ideally getting to see later taxes that bear on the period of more recent history. He must have known that he was in the red because of the trouble he was getting into getting loans. The reason he had to stop building and developing and turn to branding and then ultimately turn to less and less savory characters to lend him money, right? Some of us might believe him to believe his tweets, believe whatever. But if you're Goldman and you have a lot riding on, you have internal actuarial tables about who's a good bet and who isn't, It doesn't matter how he comes across, I guess, to everyone but Deutsche Bank. But anyway, what do you think we'll see in the next couple decades of taxes, if we get to, that might suggest what he did bouncing off this decade in the red? Boy, I don't know. Like, I I think we'll see that that sort of turnaround, right, that that happened uh, as he shifted into the branding business more fully in the in the last 15 years or so, it's what, what always just strikes me is, you know, if you think about, I think back to President Obama and like his tax returns were pretty boring, but they were also like done with the knowledge that they would become public, mm-hmm. right? They were, especially the ones when, you know, he was clear he was going to run, he was president, like they carefully decided which charities to give to and list them. And like every, the, it was sort of a known pattern that, that they would come out. And 
what's interesting about these, of course, is that's not the case at all. Like he, I'm sure, prepared these or signed them um, or did all the business deals underlying them, not assuming that they would ever become public, the ones in the 80s, the more recent ones. Yeah. And so um, that's what's what's sort of so always been so appealing about them is they are this uh, document created not not for public consumption and maybe they'll they'll become public. And so it's, uh, it's sort of voyeuristic in, in a sense, but it's also, you know, revealing in a sense because maybe it's that you know maybe it's that window into something we don't quite know right god why does hope spring eternal that i feel like there'll be a day we get some answers i think i'm still waiting for what i imagined the Mueller report dropping day would be it's like heaven maybe like at the end of the whole all of life we'll get to see all the answers about this guy i mean it'd be a lot of work for me so <laughs> that's, I mean, you know, true. Be... that's true and you want to take it easy on that day kind of yeah, see your family yeah. Last question to raise the specter of hope. Are there any ways you think that we might set stronger policy or precedent for future presidents to avoid the situation of our future politicians of any kind, candidates, to avoid having someone who played so fast and loose with the people's money as Donald Trump? So I think there's a couple of directions you can already see members of Congress heading in. Um, one is the sort of required disclosure by presidential candidates, which obviously is not going to become law now, um, but you could imagine a scenario where that becomes law in 2021 with the right, with the democratic political configuration, if that's, you know, if you support that, um, you know, that that's sort of a natural, if if, he, if the Democrats defeat him, that's sort of a natural reaction is to start putting in laws in place um, designed to limit or prevent a repeat of, of of what's happened. So just sort of, I mean, it's a little different because Nixon quit, obviously, but there was a whole range of post-Nixon uh, laws that went into effect yeah. on, campaign, on campaign finance and whatever else. And, and I think the other thing, you know, that you're starting to see people talk about more is, is restoring more funding at the IRS. It's been, mm. you know, cut dramatically since 2010, um, cut dramatically over the past 20 years. There's just fewer people there to, to audit, to audit rich people, to audit not rich people, to answer the phones. It's, you know, it's an agency that's um, borne the brunt of a lot of um, the budget cuts that have happened over the past decade. And so um, you can, any, you know, the Trump administration too has, has, has talked about actually increasing IRS funding. So you can imagine that, that being, a less direct, but a, a another way of trying to get at some of the same issues. So you're saying debtor's prison, probably not coming back? <laughs> well, and, and the other thing that that's worth thinking about, I was just thinking about this today, if he loses, right, so right now you've got this whole fight where, like, the Treasury Secretary is preventing the tax returns from going to the Hill. Well, if he loses in November 2020, there will be a new Treasury Secretary in January of 2021. Like, at that point, if Democrats are in charge of everything, do they still care enough to renew the request and get his documents over to the Hill mm -hmm. or not. And it's way, it's in, in some ways, it's way too early to think about that, obviously. Yeah. But it's also a thing that's out there as a possibility that to the extent that the disclosure to Congress is being blocked by the Trump administration. Well, if the Trump administration is not there, then scrutiny of Trump can continue even after he's no longer in office if Democrats desire it. Richard Rubin writes about tax policy for The Wall Street Journal. You can find him on Twitter at Richard Rubin, D.C. That's at Richard Rubin, D.C. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, not a problem at all. Thanks so much. 
And that's it for today's show. What'd you think? Spill the beans on Twitter if you like it there. I'm Page88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And why stop at that? Show your love for us by going to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and become a Slate Plus member. Today's the day. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. That's hay pennies a day. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Pierre Bianame. Pierre, thank you very much for being here and helping. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald J. Trump. You can find him on Twitter at JohnnyD23. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. We have a tremendous trade relationship with Russia, especially the Matryoshka dolls, which are really a great value because you're not getting one, you're getting many, and they're inside and they get smaller and smaller. It's really incredible. You got to love Russia. Everyone knows that Circe is the rightful, rightful queen of Westeros. She's rich like me, so she understands the economy. I'm sure she'd win the popular vote if they'd stop letting wildlings near the polls. Wildlings are not the best people, always looking for ways to sneak past the wall. Cersei is tough on her enemies and knows how to win wars. Make Westeros great again.